Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 148 with Dr. Chris Winter. We had a lot of fun talking sleep, and you're going to learn one, insights on what it takes to achieve better sleep, two, handy tools to enhance your sleep, and three, how Chris helps professional athletes sleep their very best. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items referenced, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep148. And while you're there at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our great resources from the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course, all about saving time and slashing waste out of your work week, as well as the Gold Nugget email list. If you wish you could take notes, but you're driving and don't have a pen and paper handy to safely do so, we take the notes for you and send them right to your inbox. You can read them in under two minutes in the morning. So check those out at awesomeatyourjob.com. Here's Chris's story. Dr. W. Chris Winter has spent over half his life involved in the study of sleep and the treatment of sleep disorders. As a board-certified neurologist and double board-certified sleep specialist, Dr. Winter has a tremendous amount of scientific knowledge that he brings to his book, The Sleep Solution, and his state-of-the-art sleep clinic in Charlottesville, Virginia. He served many professional sports teams with their sleep concerns, including the San Francisco Giants, Pittsburgh Pirates, Washington Capitals, and New York Rangers. Here is Chris. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate the invitation. Oh, well, I think we're going to have a lot of fun here. The sheer density of jokes in your book, The Sleep Solution, is any indicator. This should be a riot of a conversation. That's good. Yeah. I think when a doctor writes and tries to be funny, there is a creeping suspicion that it's funny to you, but to nobody else. So that's good to hear. Oh, no, it was good. Well, if I could, there was one moment that I laughed out loud and my wife in another room said, what's going on? (laughs) And it was the following. You're talking about vigilance. Wake up at night to a quiet, dark house and your quietly sleeping spouse. And as you roll over, vigilance is low and you go back to sleep, sometimes not even remembering you woke up. Wake up at night next to a grinning clown with tangled red hair and enormous shoes and sleep is suddenly nowhere in your immediate future. What a terrifying image. (laughs) It is. And interestingly, that response that people have, they can have it certainly with the clown. I think that's an appropriate response. I had a patient recently who talked to me about her hellish sleep. That was her adjective. I thought Mm. that was, wow, what a powerful, you know, please, patient, tell me about your hellish sleep. Like, what does that mean? She said, well, sometimes, you know, it'll take me an hour or two to fall asleep. And so I was waiting for the hellish part. and (laughs) And so it was interesting that people can create a clown in their bed if given enough time, you know, versus some people who might wake up or it takes them two hours to fall asleep and they kind of like it. You know, their boss isn't yelling at them. Their kids aren't making a mess of their house. It's just kind of a quiet time in a dark, cool, comfortable bed where you can just sort of plan out your weekend or think about your celebrity crush or whatever you want to do. So it's interesting how people's perspectives color sleep. Oh, that is interesting indeed. And so, well, I have a feeling I'm going to get too interested and ask too many questions for the time we have. 
We had uh, Dr. Michael Bruce earlier on the show, another sleep master, and that was a ton of fun. So I'm going to start right from the get-go. Can you tell us, if you're thinking about this audience, professionals who are like to make it happen, what would you say are some key sleep perspectives right off the bat you think they should keep in mind to be on top of your game sort of day after day? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, when it comes to sleep, you want to control what you can control. I work a lot in the field of sports and I like the idea of a baseball player controlling his nutrition, controlling, you know, how he takes care of his body, controlling what he does at practice. But what he does at the plate when he steps up to bat is really outside of his control. But if he's controlled all the variables he can control, he can kind of let go of any anxiety. He's done what he can do and the rest is kind of up to fate. And I think that sleep is that way. So one of the things I talk to patients about or players about is first and foremost, there's no such thing as not sleeping. So right. if you're listening to this podcast and you use phrases when you're in you know, dinner parties, well, you know, I'm somebody who just doesn't sleep or I'm a bad sleeper. I've never understood exactly what that means. It always conjures up images of airplane when people say I have a drinking problem and then they miss their mouth with their water and, and <laughs> it goes all the place. You know, I'm a bad sleeper. You know, what does that mean? That you miss the bed when you jump into it? You know, so to me, I think that what you want to control is I'm going to make sure I'm in bed at a certain time. I'm going to make sure I've got enough time set aside to sleep that I protect that time. But what happens once you get in bed is really kind of outside your control in some situations. So I think that people who are very successful share traits of being type A detail oriented. And I think if you take those traits with you into bed at night, it can be kind of an issue. When you go to bed, you want to kind of be Dave Matthews, flip-flops, hacky sack. Yeah, whatever happens, happens. No big deal. Like that's not necessarily a great trait for a person who's really successful. Oh, that is handy. Okay. So that's a big part of it is just to, you know, relax and let go and sort of do what you can do in advance. And so we'll dig into some of those details. So can you let us know in what ways sleep kind of often broken or what are some mistakes folks are making prior to getting into the bedroom? There's a lot of them. One of the things I would say about people who truly have broken sleep is sleep's interesting in the sense that you can kind of divide people with sleep problems into two camps. The first camp is the group that can't sleep. You know, I put that in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. struggle to fall asleep, struggle to stay asleep. If any little sound wakes them up, that's it. They're done for the night. And then there's the group that's excessively sleepy, can't make it through a church service, uh, has trouble staying awake at stoplights. They go out to movies, they pick the movie and frustrate their partner because they're asleep before the opening credits are finished. So, you know, to me, that group that's excessively sleepy those are the people who really have broken sleep. And to me, they really kind of fall into two categories. They're either not setting aside enough time to sleep. So my guess is a lot of people who are listening to your podcast and working bond being awesome at what they do, one of the ways they can sort of push towards that goal of being awesome is to work more, to work harder, stay up late, get more things done, you know, wake up early, go to the gym at three o'clock in the morning to get your workout in. And so I think that You know, if we're not setting aside enough time to sleep or through no fault of our own, we're working two jobs to pay a mortgage that can sort of shortchange the amount of sleep we're getting. The other group is, no, they're getting plenty of time in bed, but there's something intrinsically wrong with their sleep. They snore loudly. Their partner's been telling them for years they stop breathing. They have sleep apnea. They kick a lot. They have restless leg. They have narcolepsy. There's something like 88 different things that can be wrong with somebody's sleep. So to me, 
the bigger ones that we want to look out for are people who are having breathing disturbances at night, people who have excessive movement when they sleep at night, and then people that when you look at them seem to sleep a lot, yet still strangely are quite sleepy all the time. I gave a lecture about narcolepsy today. The average narcolepsy patient is like a 15-year gap between symptom onset and diagnosis. Oh, wow. That's a long time to think you're depressed or think that something else is going on, tick bite or vitamin D deficiency, when in fact, you've got this chemical that's missing in your brain that helps stabilize wakefulness. So those are the things I would think about. Okay, certainly. So, well, I guess outside of sort of a disease, I guess I'm thinking about your folks who they're sleepier than they want to be on most days or maybe half of days. And they seem to have a reasonable amount of time in bed. You know, what kind of jumps to mind in terms of, I don't know, tips, tools, tricks, tactics, other T words that enable you to take your sleep from, oh, it's okay to it's, you know, optimal or best in class. Sure. So, I mean, to me, now we're getting into sort of sleep hygiene tips, which I think that when you look at the media message about sleep seems to be the entirety, like everything is about your mattress, the darkness of your room, the temperature, when in fact, you know, these things, as you sort of correctly put it, generally are things that are going to take your sleep from being good. Yeah, I sleep pretty well to being really good. If you have terrible sleep or something dramatically wrong with your sleep, you know, eating some walnuts and tart cherry juice before you go to bed at night, I'm doubtful is what's going to you know, make the difference. But, you know, to me, if you're somebody who says, look, my sleep's okay, but I'd really like to, you know, take it to another level and I'm getting enough sleep, then it does become, you know, is your room really dark? I mean, can you sit down in your bed at lunchtime, turn off all the lights and close the blinds, put your hand in front of your face and not see it? I mean, that's the kind of darkness we're talking about when we're talking about bedroom. And people tell me, you know, I've got a skylight I can't cover or, you know, there's certain sources of light that I have no control over. And if that's the case, maybe an eye mask would work really well for you. It's something that takes a little while to get used to. But, you know, the ones that are out now are fairly cheap and can be very comfortable. So to me, you know, thinking about our senses, eyesight, making things really dark, rooms need to be quiet. So, you know, the TV that's sitting in your bed and you're watching one Game of Thrones episode after another or right before you go to bed or episodes of Walking Dead one after the other, not a great thing right before you go to bed because, I mean, zombies are scary as hell, so it's not a great thing right. to watch right before you go to bed. But just that light and sound in your face is not good. And when I give lectures about sleep, I always ask the question, how many people sleep with a TV on all night long? I would estimate it's like 15 to 20 percent. No kidding of athletes. So when people say things like, I just like some noise in the background and not a great thing to have. They did a great study where they put individuals in PET scanners and they, when they fell asleep, they would play them words, either adjectives or verbs. And you could see the brain sorting the words even while the individual slept. So the Whoa. idea in Spanish in your sleep is not true, but the idea that your brain's not paying attention isn't true either. It is listening. So if you have to have your TV on before you go to bed at night, just set a timer. So once you've fallen asleep, your endless episodes of friends, one after the other, finally turns off and the room is quiet and dark. If your room is noisy because of traffic noise or neighbors or a snoring spouse, I think using a noise machine can be very helpful. So you know, we've talked about sight. We've talked about sound. Smells, I think, are really important. Lavender has been shown in a couple studies to actually improve sleep. Beyond that, I think lavender is really nice because if you're always spraying it on your bed at night when you're at home, 
if you're somebody who travels or spends you know time in hotel rooms, if you take a little container of your lavender with you, once you get to your hotel room, you can spray it on your pillow there. And so now your brain smells that lavender and maybe the lavender helps you sleep a little bit better. But even if it doesn't, we tie, you know, as a neurologist, I always tell people, we tie memory most closely to smell. So when you get in this room and it's dark and you close your eyes and smell this lavender, it kind of tricks your brain into thinking you're home. You know, even now I'm 44 years old, I'll be in a mall and some woman will walk by wearing a perfume that's exactly the same as whatever some girl in college you dumped me and immediately <laughs> I feel sad, you know, <laughs> my wife will look at you like, why are you so melancholy all of a sudden? I'm like, I don't know. And it's probably because that, you know, girl walked by, I'm thinking, ah, oh, it's Laura, Laura's perfume. She dumped me ruthlessly. <laughs> First curses to Laura, right? So smells, sounds, Feel is important too. Um, I sometimes will take a nap in my office at a designated time if I've been traveling a lot. I've got this blanket somebody gave me one time that it's completely fake, but it feels like fox fur or something uh-huh. like somebody. And so when I, you know, stretch out and turn the lights off and get ready, I put this blanket over top of me. It's not so much because I'm cold, but I like the idea of when I feel animal fur on my body, it kind of tells me, oh, okay, well, this is again, another trigger that it's the sensory trigger that, okay, it's nap time. So again, darkness, smell the lavender, hear the silence, feel the animal fur, or there's some really cool bedding that you can get that there's a company called Deep Sport that makes this very unique bedding that, you know, wicks away moisture. It's FDA approved to prevent acne of all crazy things, but it's got a really cool, and I don't mean like awesome, I mean, cool as in temperature feel So, and the cool thing is they make this little travel pack that looks like a sleeping bag made out of the same material. So when you travel to the hotel room, you can unfold this thing inside of your bed and climb inside of it. And now, you know, with your lavender, you can create a dark lavender scented environment that feels, you know, to the skin like your bed at home feels. So, you know, I think those are things that can really help people if you plan those things out, really kind of elevate your sleep game. Well, that's really cool. Thank you. And now you just got me thinking. So if lavender, so you're saying you smell it before bedtime or you want your brain to be having some exposure to it during the actual slumber time? Yeah. So what I do is I just keep a little bottle next to, I have two bottles. One's next to my bed and I set it right there by my clock so I see it. So, you know, as I'm pulling the covers back and get ready to go to bed, I'll just take it and spray a little on my pillow. But then I keep another one in my travel bag and it's two ounces so it didn't get hung up in the Mm -hmm. security line. And so when I get to my Marriott hotel, I'll just walk in and spray that pillow. So I've got that consistent smell of lavender, you know, whenever I sleep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you are kind of smelling it as you're unconscious as well. And that is part of the benefits in the studies. Exactly. So they did two that I'm aware of. One was they had, you know, two groups of individuals in rooms to sleep. One room was infused with, I think, sweet almond oil as a control. The other room, lavender, and the lavender people slept better. And then they crossed them over. So the lavender people went to the other room and vice versa. They didn't really know what to expect. And in both groups, the lavender did better. They also did a study, I think at Johns Hopkins, where they actually used the lavender in an ICU setting and found that it helped with the patient sleep there too, because that's a very, very difficult place to get any kind of quality sleep. Mm, intriguing. Okay. So now this gets me going in terms of saying, if your brain is registering different kinds of words differently, well, then might another sleep hack be to have a recording of words like rejuvenation, slumber, refreshment? <laughs> <laughs> well, they did, there was a study where they had a group of individuals 
as they were going to bed, repeat the mantra, I think it was like go deeper or, you know, just kind of over and over said deeper, deeper. And they were asking the individuals in the study to imagine themselves descending down. Like I think the image they tried to get patients to use, well, you're actually like in a diving suit and you're in the water and you're going deeper and deeper underwater. And, you know, as you kind of go deeper, the light penetrating the water becomes less and less. So they were trying to get people to say, you know, go deeper and visualize descending deeper and deeper into the water. And they found that the individuals who did this exercise as they went to bed actually displayed more deep sleep, which is the sleep that kind of makes you feel better the next day. So I'll admit that when I have a situation, you know, I've travel has gotten me to a place where I've, you know, I'm arriving at two o'clock in the morning. I've got to be up at seven to go give a lecture. I always make it a habit that when I feel like I don't have quite enough time in bed to get the sleep that I need, I utilize that. And I've convinced myself it definitely works. You know, I try to kind of visualize myself on what, you know, you ever watch these kind of sci-fi shows where they go to Jupiter they always put people in these kind of hibernation chambers and then they kind of wake them up when you get to Jupiter. And I always kind of think of myself in a pod like that, sort of going deeper and deeper into space and kind of repeating that. And I always feel like it's making the most of the limited time I have in bed. Oh, that's so good. Thank you. And so, well, now let's cover off. It seems like blue light is often the enemy that is causing all kinds of troubles. And so, first of all, I want to cover, when you talk about blue light, we're talking about sort of devices and screens, you know, iPads and computers and such. So can you give us a sense for, you know, is that like a big win or a small win to get that under control and not be watching, you know, Netflix on your laptop immediately before bed? I think it's a huge win. All right. right. So I certainly am somebody who's not anti-technology, but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of stress with our phones. The light in our eyes is really negative. The little beeps and things. People tell me, well, you know, I have it face down on my end table. Yeah, but every time you get paid, you get the little Star Trek, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of notification or a little flashing light. And to me, it's just kind of a vigilant thing. I talked to a professional football player one time at a training camp and he said, I'm fearful I'm not going to make the team this year. And I said, why do you think that? He said, oh, I know why. It's because of my phone. And mm. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, he goes, I'm clearly addicted to my phone. He goes, I don't really talk about it, but I get home and I will stick it in the back of a drawer just to get it out of my hands. And he said, an hour later, I'm sitting there on it and I don't really remember how it got back in my hands. So, I mean, people are on these things so much. It's so easy to spend so much time and having that light in your face is terrible. So I think, yes, if you can get your phone under control and put it somewhere like in the kitchen at night, that is great. Now, yes, if that's your only line of communication, you might need to turn the ringer up or have some sort of situation where you've set it so that, you know, only certain things go through at night, but people really need, I mean, I talk to kids about their phones all the time and I love the excuse of, well, I need it in my room because of the alarm clock. It's like children and my own were probably included, have no idea that we had alarm clocks no. before the phone came out. I mean, I said to that, I said, you know, you can get like a Darth Vader alarm clock at Bed Bath & Beyond for about 10 bucks, right? I mean, and so, I mean, I think that people <laughs> come up with all kinds of excuses. So yeah, I mean, if you can get that phone out of your bedroom or your laptop or your pad or whatever, read a real book. Chuck Sizer did a wonderful study several years ago that said, look, if you actually read a physical book with an indirect light, it's much better for your sleep than reading an e-reader. Mm-hmm. Now we talk about blue light as being the enemy, 
it's a great thing in the morning. I mean, knock yourself out with that phone in your face when you first wake up in the morning. I mean, that's a wonderful, we want light in our face in the morning, but just that at night, you really need to kind of create a situation. You know, Ariana Huffington sells on her Thrive Global webpage, this little bed. I mean, it's a truly like, it's like a Barbie doll bed, but it's for your family's cell phones. And so the, <laughs> it's a symbol for you put this thing in your kitchen and everybody puts their phones to bed at night. I'm assuming this connects to the AC outlet for charging purposes. It does. Okay, good, There's good. There's all kinds <laughs> little things on there. So it's a wonderful, you know, symbol for your kids. You know, I've tried to instill, okay, when we get in the car, our phones go in the glove compartment. You know, it's just a nice way to teach people the responsible way to use these things. But they are a real negative when it comes to sleep. And if you're somebody who says, look, yeah, I run into like scouts. Scouts will tell me for these pro teams I work with, I have to be on my computer at night. So I have to have my scouting report done and ready for the team the next morning. If you have to be on something like that at night for your work, they have these little cheap blue blocker glasses that are great. Just put them on and at least you're filtering out the blue green light from your monitor or get something installed on your computer. There's an app called Flux. Apple makes sort of a dimmer thing that basically when you're looking at your phone at night, it tends to dim the blue green. So your screen looks a little pink, but you're getting rid of some of those or negative wavelengths of light. So I'd love to get your professional take on this. I've wondered for a while. So I do have the F-Lux or Flux. I don't know how to say it. There's period in the middle of the F and the Lux. But <laughs> I always say F-Lux. F-Lux, buddy. <laughs> I mean, I thought Roy Orbison was blind until just a couple of years ago. So my perception of things means nothing. So, I mean, that's great. I use it. I have it. It's on. I also have some blue blocking lenses that the Uvex or Skyper, yeah, yeah, I think exactly. is the brand. And so that's cool. And I've got that. But could you, you know, if you had to hazard a wild numerical guess, like if watching a straight up unfiltered full blue light episode of something amazing on Netflix right before bed is 100 points of badness and reading a book is zero points of badness, where would you put watching a Netflix show with the Flux and or the UVX or Skyper shades? I would probably say you've gone from 100% badness to 50%. I mean, again, some people would argue you probably shouldn't even you know, read somewhere else. You shouldn't be reading in bed. I mean, whatever. To me, if somebody says, look, I like to read in bed. It's comfortable. It's warm. I read for 15 minutes. I turn my light off. I go right to sleep. I don't care if you read in bed. So to me, you know, and thinking about Chuck's you know, study where people fell asleep faster. They got several, you know, minutes more sleep at night. Their efficiency was better. I mean, I think you've gone from 100 to at least 50. I think it's a big gain mm-hmm. by really taking advantage of things to minimize that light in your face. And then trying to do something, and then the content of what you're watching too, like, you know, instead of watching something about North Korea's nuclear capabilities, it's not a matter of if they strike the United States <laughs> win. That's probably not something great to watch. How about a documentary on Spandau Ballet? There you go. That's a perfect thing to watch before you go to bed. Okay. It with some you know, new romantic music as you fall asleep. Oh, that is good. Well, while we're talking music, thank you for mentioning that. Is there some optimal stuff to listen to while winding down? I've heard as that Marconi Union had a tune called weightless or breathless or something, which was like allegedly proven to be the most relaxing song in the world. I was like, whoa, is that a real thing? And how should we think about potentially using music as a relaxing force for slumber enhancement? 
you know, a lot of people ask that, you know, can I listen to music before I go to bed at night? I don't really have much of a problem with that. I think it's just important that if you're listening with, you know, headphones or, you know, some sort of device that it's set. Okay, we'll listen to 20 minutes and then it'll cut off. Now, if you're still awake 20 minutes into the music listening session, I don't really have a problem with rolling over and turning it back on for another 20 minutes. Okay, thank you. Well, now let's talk about temperature for a bit. I guess the traditional wisdom is your bedroom should be a sleep sanctuary that resembles a cave. It's cool and dark and such and quiet. So I'm wondering, what is the optimal temperature and what if that feels too cold to you? Should you just find a way to adapt or should you just make it more comfortable for yourself? People who kind of explore these things are thinking, you know, temperature may be as important as light, maybe even more so. So to me, my guess is the optimal temperature is somewhere around 65 if you said hogwash at 68, I'm not going to argue with you. So to me, I think that it's important. You know, the bottom line is cooler is better. So if you argue with your spouse, as many do, whoever thinks the cooler environment's better it probably wins. It's like the one thing men are right about in general. You know, my wife and I kind of fight about that too. She's like, my God, it's so cold. And you know, she's walking around some bearskin rug. Off. She's like somebody out of the Revenant. You know what I mean? <laughs> when, you know, 11 o'clock at night comes around. She's freezing. You know, I'm cruising around my boxers thinking is, you know, I'm still really warm. So to me, and that has a lot to do with, are you a night owl or a morning person when your body temperature is dropping? So cool is better. And if you're somebody, you know, like my wife, who's cold at night, and then you really need to kind of pay attention to what your bedding like, you know? So to me, you want to go to bed wearing relatively little and then really modulate your temperature with your bedding. So if you're cold and you should have blankets and duvets and quilts and things like that, that you can easily push off and pull on as the night goes on because our temperatures change dramatically throughout the night, not only over the span of the night, but as we dream, you know, when we dream, we're kind of like a snake sitting on a rock. We don't really regulate our body temperatures when we dream. So, you know, people will tell you they go to bed cold, but they wake up sweating. A lot of my athletes tell me horror stories that they wake up literally in pools of sweat and they have to get up and take their shirt off and put a towel down in this little puddle and go back to bed. I mean, if this is what's happening in your bed at night, you really need to pay attention to either controlling the ambient temperature of your bedroom or finding something, you know, there's this great device called a chili pad. Mm -hmm. By the way, I have no financial connections to these products, but this is a company that makes this little mattress topper that has these little tubes in it that pump water and you can cool your bed down to 50 or heat it up to like 119 or something like that. And the great thing is you can buy one that's got two zones. So your partner, they can do whatever the hell they want to do over there in their neck of the woods. In your side of the bed, you can have it exactly the temperature you want. And the cold of that device is no joke. I mean, you can make your bed really cold to the point where it's kind of tough to get used to. But you know, I like a very cold bed. I feel like I sleep much better. And, and my wife would even tell you that even though she doesn't, the nights where I don't use the chili pad, I'm much more restless and tend to move around more. So she's usually one that says, oh, you know, don't forget to turn that chili pad on because I want to get some sleep over here. <laughs> well, that's fun. Well, it seems to me, though, that if it's cold such that you're uncomfortable and having trouble falling asleep, then that would be counterproductive. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and you've probably gone a little too far if that's the case. So no, when I get in bed, it's initially it's like, ooh, you know, it's pretty exhilarating there, but it doesn't <laughs> take long for me to kind of sort of normalize that. It's not like that all night long, although I'm sure some people would be. Now, your body temperature will raise the temperature of the side of your bed. High, you know, when you get in bed, the temperature will say, you know, 55. If you look at it later in the night, it might say, you know, 63 because it can't, 
quite cool to bed that low with your 98.6 degree body, you know, mm-hmm. and it can keep it, you know, quite cool. You've got that feeling of coolness sort of all through the night. What can you tell us about when you are traveling, you have a jet lag situation. What are some approaches to managing that? I understand there's something you can do with fasting. Yeah, so there's a couple of things you can do. And, and I find this kind of interesting because this is what we do a lot with our athletes. You know, number one, if you're somebody who's sort of a night owl, generally speaking, night owls tend to travel better than people who are more morning oriented, which is kind of interesting. You know, so to me, when it comes to travel, it's really about a couple of things. Number one, what is your purpose in traveling? Are you traveling from New York to LA? You're going to give a lecture and then come right back. Or are you traveling from New York to LA and you're going to be there for 10 days sightseeing and having a good time looking around California? So because that sort of influences what you want to do. There's an NFL team several years ago that basically said, you know what, our approach to travel is going to be we're going to keep ourselves on Eastern Standard Time no matter what, which was nice that they were actually thinking about this issue, but very short-sighted in the sense that sometimes, you know, when it comes to us feeling our best, adapting to a new time zone is the better thing to do. Sometimes, frankly, it's not, depending on, you know, most people are sort of intellectually and athletically at their peak somewhere around four to five o'clock in the afternoon, which is kind of funny when you think about school start times. I mean, our kids are literally getting off the bus just as their little kid brains are starting to kind of, you know, hit on all cylinders, which is an unfortunate thing if you're a child who's kind of a night out and has to take a test at eight o'clock in the morning. Is that true for adults as well? Probably so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, as we get a little older, I think there is a general shift to being more advanced, meaning that maybe when you're young, five or six o'clock is your peak. Maybe when you're retired and living in Sarasota, Florida, maybe it's three, you know, so there's a general movement from the college night owl person to being sort of, yeah, we're living in Boca Raton and we get up at three o'clock in the morning, get our Vitamix out and we're on the golf course at six. We watch McNeil Lair and go to bed at seven o'clock at night. You know, it's kind of like where grandma and grandpa go. Oh, they went to bed. I'm like, well, God, the sun hasn't gone down yet. So there is a tendency to kind of move that way, but not everybody. So so when it comes to travel, if you were a bit more night oriented, you might have an advantage with that. But it's also important to kind of pay attention to, you know, what direction are you moving? It's generally easier for us to travel west than east. It's kind of, if you think about dinner time, it's a lot easier for somebody to delay their dinner an hour or two than it is for me to advance your dinner. If you're used to eating dinner at six and I told you, hey, let's go out and have some dinner at three o'clock you're probably not particularly hungry. So it's a lot easier to stave off sleep or stave off hunger than to artificially create it. Like, okay, be hungry now. Well, I can't, I'm not hungry. So that's kind of how sleep is. When we travel west, we don't have to stay up a little bit later. It's not that big a deal. We're in Vegas. Vegas is exciting. When we come back east, you know, it's 11 o'clock. It's time to go to bed. We don't feel like it because we're still on, you know, West Coast time. So anyway, so travel, you have to kind of look at the person you are. You have to look at the direction you're moving. And to me, it really starts to rely on, okay, what are the things we can do prior to leaving? So getting yourself kind of moving towards a schedule of where you're going prior to leaving is important. And we can use light. We can use exercise timing. We can change the composition and timing of our meals. These are all great things we can use. So that's all the light manipulations we were talking about. You know, if the sun comes up at three o'clock in the morning where you're going, you might want to get on your laptop or on your computer at various times to kind of get your brain starting to understand that, hey, the sun's going to start coming up earlier where we're going. There are training facilities out there for athletes that have windows 
that look like windows, but they're not really windows to the outside. It's like frosted glass. And when you're in there shooting your free throws, you can see the sun going down outside. Well, it's really not going down. It's a simulated sunset to get the athletes inside ready to be on East Coast time, even though they're out West. So there's all kinds of interesting little light manipulations you can do. There's all kinds of websites if you go on them. There's this really cool device called a retimer. It's made in Australia. It's these little goggles that make you look like Tron. Mm-hmm. Put them on, they shine a blue-green light back into your eyes. If you go on their website, you can actually enter in, okay, I'm going to New Zealand. I'm going to take the Lord of the Rings tour. I'll leave in seven days. I'm really excited about it because mm-hmm. I'm a huge Tolkien fan and you know, whatever. And you can actually plug in your travel dates and it'll tell you, okay, well, we want you to use these goggles at these various times in the days leading up to your travel to help prepare you. So those are very important things you can do. We actually made little cards for NBA scouts because they go all over the world and have horrible travel situations that allow them to, when they arrived in a city, they could calculate how many hours east or west they moved. And then it would tell them, this is what you need to eat, you know, protein-heavy meals, carb-heavy meals, when you need to eat it, when you should seek light, when you should avoid it, when you should exercise, when you shouldn't to give them sort of a framework for how to better combat these types of things. The thing that you referred to in terms of fasting is Cliff Saper did some interesting research up at Harvard looking at what happens when you fast a rat. And so what happens is we have this circadian rhythm that kind of sits in our suprachiasmatic nucleus in our brain. And so if everything's working well, that's our timekeeper, kind of tells us what to do. Now, if all of a sudden we stop eating, your brain starts to panic a little bit and say, you know what? It's not a great idea for us to go to bed now since we haven't eaten in a while. So what your brain does is it turns over control of your circadian rhythm from your suprachiasmatic nucleus to the part of your brain called your paraventricular nucleus. What happens then is your brain says, okay, look, we need to eat. That is our top priority now. Once you arrive in your new time zone and you eat, then your brain sort of picks up the circadian rhythm again, but from that time. So we tell people, hey, look, if you can do it, Try to, you know, when you're flying from New York to Heathrow, try to get up in the morning, try not to eat, just drink a lot of water and not eat until your first meal in London. And it's amazing how, you know, business travelers will tell you all the time it really works. I mean, and the funny thing is a guy wrote about it many, many years before and called it the, I think it was called the jet lag diet. And he advocated fasting, but it wasn't until many years later that they actually figured out why it works. So how this other guy knew it would work is really baffling to me. It's mm. you know, interesting. But anyway, so if you can do it and try it, you could give it a shot and see what you thought. And then there's also medications that are available out there through your doctor, their prescription that can help with, you know, shift work and jet lag that might be useful to you. Now, when you say medications, I'd like to get your quick take on melatonin and any sort of warnings about drugs, just a public safety message. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that Drugs have their place. I mean, certainly if you're somebody out there listening to this who's been diagnosed with restless leg disorder, I think that certainly these medications that can treat that and make you feel worlds better. If you're somebody who says, look, I need a sleeping pill to sleep, I think you're wrong. You need a pill to sleep about as much as you need a pill to get hungry. I've never gone out to lunch with a bunch of people and you know, the chicken sandwiches and salads arrive and somebody looks at their chicken sandwich and says, God, you know, I'm really not that hungry. Does anybody have an appetite stimulant I could take to make sure I <laughs> eat this food? Because I certainly don't want to starve to death. I've seen that. It's not the way I want to exit this world. I mean, people think differently about sleep than they do food. I mean, most people look at that chicken sandwich and say, ah, I'm not that hungry. And they just move on with their life. Nobody's in the back of their mind doubting whether they'll ever be hungry again. But man, if somebody gets in their bed 
and has this ID. They're going to bed at 11 o'clock and now it's 1122. It can be a real, you know, hellish situation for some people. <laughs> me, you know, I think that there is a role for medications or sleeping pills, but they should be defined. To me, a sleeping pill should have a plan. And the plan is not, I'm going to take this until I see a white light and dead family members coming to greet me. <laughs> That's not a great plan for a sleeping pill. Like it should be defined. And if you're somebody who feels like, oh, I can't sleep without a pill, you need to get control of that situation because you're shortchanging yourself that great sleep that we were talking about earlier. Mm, very good. And so and melatonin, would you put in the same category there? You don't want to be a daily user? Yeah, I mean, melatonin has this kind of wrap for it. You take it because it's natural. Your brain makes it anyway, and it's not FDA regulated. But, you know, we make melatonin. You want to take some melatonin, take it naturally in the sense that get up in the morning when your alarm goes off and seek the brightest light you can find. If you can't find anything bright where you're, if you're waking up when it's still dark outside or you live somewhere it's kind of dark and gray, like in Seattle or London, then get a light box or get those retimer goggles. And every morning when you wake up, you sit next to that light box, check your email, lots and lots of light in your face in the morning. Then dinner time, go to Home Depot this weekend, get some dimmer switches, put them all through your house. So when your dinner's over, it should look like sort of a Barry White kind of romantic situation okay. going on in your house. Like you're not tripping over stuff and falling down, but it's dark, you know, dim and dark and moody. And it's why people, when they go camping, they have all these great ideas. We'll get the kids in the tent and we'll make some s'mores and I'm going to sit up and read my new book I got about David Bowie and all these grand plans when the power goes out or when I go camping. And the fact of the matter is, you know, I start yawning. I'm like, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. I look at my watch. It's like 817. I mean, we respond very strongly to a diminishment of light. So if you really want to make the most of melatonin, help your body out. Lots of bright light when you first wake up dim lights in the evening after dinner. And when you get in the bed, it is dark, dark, dark. I mean, pitch black. You know, melatonin is great for, you know, shifting your circadian rhythm. But if you're somebody who's taking melatonin every night, everybody always takes melatonin right when they go to bed. So what's happening is you're getting in bed and you're getting this surge of melatonin when you take it. Well, our melatonin naturally surges when the sun goes down, you know, seven o'clock in the evening, sun goes down, we get a bump in melatonin. It's called a dim light melatonin onset. But what happens is when people take it themselves, they're getting this big surge at night. And after a while, your brain kind of thinks, oh, well, this must be when the sun's going down. Well, 11 o'clock at night's not when the sun's going down. Sun went down at 7 o'clock, but now your brain thinks the sun's going down at 11. So it's preparing for sleep at what, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning? So a lot of people who take melatonin every night will say, well, I first started taking it, it really worked well, but it doesn't really seem to do much for me anymore. In fact, I'm kind of back to having trouble sleeping. Right. Because now you've convinced your brain that the sun is going down much later than it really is. So if you're going to take melatonin, kind of surprise yourself with it. Again, have a plan. My plan for melatonin is I take it when I travel. If you're a baseball pitcher, I take melatonin, you know, in the first two nights when I'm in a new city, you know, and, and then that's it. So your brain never has a chance to get used to it being there. Mm, okay. Very good. Thank you. Well, so now I'm curious to hear. So you have these cards in which it says, hey, at this time, do that, at this time, do that. You know, in the world of feeling energetic, non-fatigued, non-sleepy all day at work and afterwards, you know, with the natural lows that pop in during the course of a day, what are some of your top perspectives, I'd say even beyond sleep, in terms of if you want to be a zesty, energized, alert, rock star professional, and then family man or woman afterwards, without being dragging and exhausted? What are some of the other key things that should be done? I mean, I think that we can learn a lot from looking at elite athletes. 
I think number one, you got to take care of your body. I mean, I tell patients that your exercise needs to be like brushing your teeth. I mean, you don't have to set the world on fire every day. And I think that's something people struggle with. They're like, oh, I don't have time to do my 10 mile run today. So I'll just do it tomorrow. Well, but you just do one mile. I get on the treadmill, run a mile and, and call it a day. I mean, everybody has their off days, but exercise has to be a part of your routine. I think exercise first thing in the morning in a light environment that happens at the same time every morning, you know, get up at 645, have a bagel and some orange juice, take the dog for a walk or a jog, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes out in the sunlight when you wake up, if the sun's up at that time, is about the best thing you can do for your sleep and really good for your body. So to me, got to take care of your body. Nutrition is extremely important. We have to fuel ourselves properly to feel good during the day. And, you know, these athletes do a fantastic job of it. They eat the right things. They have good timing of their meals. They're very consistent. It was a really interesting study a while back that looked at people who ate a candy bar. And they had this study where people were given a candy bar either at random times during the day or at the exact same time every day. It was amazing how much better the body dealt with the candy bar, almost as if it wasn't even a problem if you gave the candy bar to the person at exactly the same time every day. So I, you know, I always think about military, you know, say what you want about the military. Their idea of consistency is awesome. You get up at the same time every day. And a big mistake a lot of people make is when they don't sleep well, they give themselves this little get out of waking up free card, you know, well, I didn't sleep well last night, so I get to sleep in until noon. Well, it's better if you don't. It's better if you create a situation where you set aside your seven, eight hours of sleep at night, whatever works best for you. If you get your seven, eight hours, great. You get up at 645, exercise and start your day with a bagel and some orange juice. If you don't sleep well, it takes you a couple hours to fall asleep or you, God forbid, woke up in the middle of the night, you were up for one hour. Big deal. You still should be getting up at 645. Well, I might feel tired the next day. Sure you will. That's a great message to your brain to, hey, next time you wake up in the middle of the night, let's not be awake for an hour. You know, you want to make your brain kind of feel it. Really what's at the underlining a lot of people's problems with their sleep is they fear not sleeping. And why wouldn't you? God, every message we get about if you don't get your eight hours of sleep, you'll die of a heart attack or a stroke or some God forbidden combination of the two. Like, you know, so it's important that they understand, yeah, sleep's important. But if you have a difficult night, you still want to start your day off at the same time, avoid napping and just try again tomorrow night. It's not that big a deal. My guess is second night's going to be a lot more. So we want to kind of reinforce to our brain, here's our eight hours, use it or lose it. You're not getting any other time. Just like if you were in the army, I always tell people, if I fail you as a sleep doctor, join the military, a lot of your sleep problems will be fixed in a week. Well then, could you now share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? A favorite quote. <laughs> I'll share this. I don't think I've ever shared this with anybody. We have some secret quotes in our sleep clinic that we always felt like if we ever made t-shirts in our sleep clinic, these would be the things we put on them. And the two that I like the best, number one is sleep always wins. I think that's important because I think a lot of people think they have a lot more control over their sleep than they really do. Like the other one is you can't fall asleep hanging sheetrock. So what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of carpenters will tell you things like, well, I'm fine as long as I'm busy. You shouldn't have to be busy to not fall asleep. So if you have trouble making it through a church service or a college class or your kid's soccer game without nodding off, that's probably something to pay attention to. Okay, good deal. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Oh, God, there's so many good ones. 
You know, one of the things I like is I think that in terms of setting the stage for sleep, neatness is important. And maybe I'm more sensitive to this because I've got an 18-year-old daughter who, man, can she tear her room up. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like, she's, oh, no, everything is, there's a system to it, you know? So there's all these studies that talk about people who are sloppy are actually much more intelligent. So she must be a freaking genius. <laughs> that's the case. But anyway, if you think about your bedroom, it should really be a neat, clean place. You know, keep your clutter somewhere else. Keep your laundry somewhere else. When you walk into that bedroom, it should be a real, you know, nothing scattered. The bed is clean. I like showering before you get into your bed. I think that's an important thing. And they did a study where they looked at little rats and the ones that slept in dirty cages did not sleep as well as the ones in clean cages. So I've always thought that's a nice little tidbit of something you can control and always kind of like that study. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? A favorite book. I've got a lot of them. You know, as a doctor, I always liked House of God by Samuel Shem. It was a book that I read when I was an undergraduate before I went into medical school. And then I read it at some point after I went through residency. It was like a completely different book. It was the book that St. Elsewhere, the TV show many years ago where Denzel Washington, I think, got his start in television. It was based on. So I always liked that book. I also liked the book Into the Wild. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was a really interesting book. I like the idea of sleeping in nature. There's a really cool study that showed that men, if they slept in environments that were close to nature, had access to nature, they slept better. So I always thought that was kind of cool. Oh, yeah. And how about a favorite tool, a product or service or app, something that helps you sleep well or be awesome at your job? We've covered a lot of them. One of my favorite is, and I'm telling you this, if you need a gift for somebody, this is the gift to give them, is a device called a Nap Anywhere. So it's this little, it looks like a Frisbee. It's super lightweight. It's like the shape of a dinner plate. It can easily slide into your travel bag or your computer bag if you travel a lot. So when you get on the plane, you unfold it and it perfectly cradles your neck. So it's the best combination of function and size. I mean, I love, you know, a sort of a decadent sleep pillow or something for the plane. But the problem is your plane's arrived, you're now in New York, and now you've got this massive pillow and nowhere really to put it. This thing's awesome. So if you're listening to this, I would say get some little foam earplugs, buy a little $8 sleep mask off Amazon, get yourself a nap anywhere, and you just keep them in your travel bags. And the other nice thing is you don't ever have to worry about packing it. It's just there all the time. And I put that nap anywhere on one time and I fell asleep and I woke up as the plane was coming up to the gate and I said to the person next to me, I said, oh God, is there something wrong? I said, why do we go back to the gate? They're like, this is the gate in LA. You've been asleep for eight hours. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was completely out. And the guy who designed it is a physician. So he designed it to really pay attention to your cervical spine and supporting it properly so you don't you know, arrive at your destination, unable to move your left arm because of the way your neck kind of fell when you slept. So it's a slam dunk and it's not that expensive. It's very durable. I'm still using the same one I bought many years ago and it's awesome. Comes in a whole bunch of different colors. So that to me is the product you have to have. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And have a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that helps you flourish. A favorite habit. Here is a life-changing habit for me was Sometimes, you know, if I've been really traveling a lot, I would be sitting there talking to a patient at 11 o'clock in in the morning and thinking, my God, I can barely keep my eyes open. I really, you know, I'm going to take a nap at lunchtime today. I'm really excited about that. You know, and finally you you make it through your morning and, oh God, you know, great. I tell my assistant, hey, please just hold my calls. I'm going to take my 30 minute nap. And I usually try to nap at the same time every day if I nap. And I rarely do nap, but if I nap, it's always between 1.30 and 2.00. 
again, that scheduling aspect. So completely sleepy, can barely keep my eyes open during my patient, get in there, recline fully, dark, got my little fur blanket on, ready to go. And then I'm sitting there thinking, my God, I'm not falling asleep. What on earth is going on here? So to me, you know, what really changed the way I approach sleep is I don't go to bed to sleep. I go to bed to rest. And there's awesome studies that show that resting, if you do it effectively, can be, you know, 70% of what sleep does in some testing domain. So to me, I don't nap, I rest. So, and by just that mental change of going in, okay, I'm going to have a 30 minute rest. It takes that performance anxiety out of the mix. So if you have kids, don't call it nap time, call it rest time. You know, I need you all to go to your bedrooms. Mommy or daddy needs some time to themselves. I need you all to have a rest. And that doesn't imply sleep. You just rest. Now, a lot of times you'll sleep. And that's what I find is when I stop trying to sleep, I sleep almost immediately. In fact, I've had this idea for an article where I'm going to get in bed. I'm going to rest for the next six to seven hours. And so the whole night I'm going to be relaxed. I'll think about how many state capitals I can think of. I'll try to name as many you know, Major League Baseball teams. I'll plan out a dream vacation. I'm obsessed with Jada. So I'll just think about, she's my celebrity crush. And Jada and I are going to be somewhere in Italy having great Italian meals. Of course, my wife's invited to. If she wants to come, it's great. So I have all these ideas of things I'll think about at night go through six or seven hours and then see how I really feel the next day having just rested at night. I can't do it. I've tried it so many times and I feel like I'm making it 15 minutes the next thing I know my alarm clock's going off. And if you have trouble resting, another really cool device is a thing called Muse, M-U-S-E. It's a little device you put on your forehead and measures your brain activity and it converts it into the sound of the ocean. So during the day, you know, you have lunch and you're sitting there in your office, put this thing on your head, get it all hooked up and you practice relaxing your brain by listening to the sound of the ocean. If you're successful, the ocean gets quieter and quieter. If you're not successful and you're thinking about your mother-in-law all of a sudden, then the ocean gets real stormy and violent. So it helps you practice and track your ability to calm your brain. It's an awesome, awesome app. And it really helps to underscore the idea that people who say, I can't shut my mind off that is not a trait like eye color. It's a skill like riding your bike that you can get better at. Mm, well, thank you so much. And when you say resting, is there any sort of key other than you're lying down, your eyes are closed, you're not moving? Is there anything else missing from resting? Uh, I think that's it. I think you're horizontal. Right. You're in a dark, quiet environment and you're at ease. You know, I, every now and then I'll get in bed and kind of realize, wow, it's 10 minutes since I've gotten in bed and turned the lights out. I'm still awake. I love it. I really do. I'm like, it almost makes me feel giddy. Like I enjoy that time. Like I certainly don't fear like, oh, okay, well here, I'll just, what could I talk to Pete about next time he calls about, you know, ways to be awesome. I'll think about that for a little while. And then, you know, maybe it'd be kind of cool to build an outdoor fireplace. I wonder what's involved in that. I've tiled before. I wonder if it's any different than that. Like I don't mind having time alone with, you know, myself at night in a dark environment. And I think that when you start to extract the fear and loathing from the situation, and you actually enjoy that time and you're relaxed about it, it really changes everything. Mm, perfect. Thank you. Well, and so now I was going to ask, maybe you just shared it. Is there a particular nugget that you share in your writings or your consulting, your coaching, your speaking that seems to particularly resonate with folks that gets them nodding their head and saying, yes? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I think that the people who struggle the most sometimes with their sleep are the people who are really trying to sleep. And I think that one thing that kind of resonates with people too is it's very easy when people feel poorly during the day 
to immediately wake up and point a finger at their sleep and think, God, if I could just sleep a little bit better, I would feel awesome. And that might be the case. But there are a lot of things that can make people feel poorly that have nothing to do with their sleep. So that's one of the things I always talk about with sleepiness and fatigue. We don't use words precisely like sleepy, tired, fatigued, exhausted, pooped. We just say them. And some people who say I'm you know, tired mean I'm having trouble staying awake because I am so driven to sleep, either because I was up late last night or my sleep's terrible. Other people might say I'm really tired because I just ran a 10K race and I don't have a lot of energy in my body anymore. I think one thing that really resonates with people is when you're struggling because you don't feel optimally at this point in your life, really differentiate when you go see your healthcare professional, are you feeling sleepy, like driven to sleep? I am struggling to stay awake during work meetings. I'm struggling. I fell asleep at a stoplight and a guy behind me honked and woke me up. Like, is that what you're describing? Or are you saying, look, I just have no internal energy or motivation to do things. Or I walk up a flight of stairs and I feel like my body has lost all of its energy, like I've got the flu. That to me is fatigue, not sleepiness. And you can have both. But I think starting a dialogue off with your healthcare professional where you've done the work to separate those things can really help to get your improvement off on the right path. Um, And I think because a lot of times when people feel tremendous fatigue when they wake up in the morning, they're having an incorrect thought that if they could just sleep more, sleep better, that fatigue would go away. And a lot of times if that fatigue is because you're a vitamin D deficiency or your B12 is low or you've got a tick-borne illness, you're going to drive yourself crazy and spend a lot of money on sleep studies and things of that nature in an individual who is not particularly sleepy. They are fatigued. So Doing that work for your primary care physician can pay huge dividends. Mm, Great, thank you. And Chris, if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Well, I mean, I would hope that people would read my book. If you've tried all the little tips, you know, my room's dark and I've got the blanket and this and that, and things aren't working for you from a sleep perspective, I really feel like my book is a step back from that to say, okay, let's really think and talk about sleep fundamentally and move forward from there. So I think that's, a good resource. I think if you're somebody who is medically struggling and you're not getting the support you need from your primary care physician, there are wonderful sleep specialists all over this country. You know, reach out to them. I mean, sleep strangely, even though it's one of the top seven complaints patients bring to their doctors, doctors sort of moving patients towards sleep specialists is not something that's always on their mind. So if that's the case, you might need to advocate for yourself a little bit and do that. So to me, I think those are important things. And just, you know, seek out good sources of information, the National Sleep Foundation, American Sleep Association. I'll have wonderful websites that have really good evidence-based scientific stuff about sleep on there. I'm a neurologist. I've been involved in sleep since before I could legally buy a beer. Um, (laughs) So hopefully uh, my book will help to kind of bridge that information gap that's sometimes lacking out there and hopefully do it in a fun way because sleep's fun. I mean, there's guys super fun. And I hope that my book makes it that way. Oh, good. Thank you. And do you have a final call to action or challenge for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. I I think that the biggest thing for me when I work with a business or a team is create a culture of sleep. Like that's step one. Forget the device on your wrist and all that stuff. Like you want to create a place where if you're an employee or you're the boss of people, 
that they understand that sleep's important. It's important to you. You know, Ariana Huffington naps and keeps windows open in her office so everybody can see she's doing it. She doesn't want to hide it. You know, it shouldn't be something where you got to sneak out to your car and do it. You want to be in a place where you foster a supportive and a sort of a sharing environment where if you're not sleeping well, you're having trouble with sleepiness, it's not looked at as a weakness any more than if you had a headache or God forbid somebody in your office had a seizure. I mean, these are all medical things. And the person who has a seizure doesn't mean he's weak. It just means he's got some electrical instability in his brain and we need to talk about it and figure out ways he or she can fix it and move on with our lives. So I think if you're in a position to influence culture in your workplace, you know, there's a, I was just up in New York with LinkedIn. They did a whole sleep fair at the LinkedIn New York office. It was awesome. From 10 to 2, they had speakers come in and products and just through this big kind of sleep party, people were given pajamas and encouraged to wear them. And it was really fun and informative. And if there's a little way you can do that with the place where you work, where you make sleep fun and tangible and exciting, I think you could really change the way not only do you feel, but the way your office feels too. So I think that'd be a great step towards more success. Oh, perfect. Well, Chris, thanks so much. It's been a blast and I hope that your book and practice are just explosively successful. Hey, I appreciate that. I really do. And good luck with your adventures too. I think what you're doing is very important. I think Chris really helped me out a lot when it comes to how dark is dark in terms of the image of it should be kind of romantical you know, at night in your home, sort of the mood of the light as well as in the bedroom itself that you cannot even see your hand in front of your face. So I've made some steps to get things extra dark in my life as well as extra cool. And I really have seen a difference. I can see it on my little Fitbit tracker there. The extra cool, extra dark has been extra good. So I hope that enhances your slumber and rejuvenation and alertness on each workday. And again, if you want to reference some of these items, the show notes, the transcript, the links to the nifty tools and gadgets Chris mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep148. And I do recommend you push the subscribe button. If you haven't already, you can catch our next guest. It's another Chris, Chris Edmonds. He's talking culture. And boy, does he have a world of experience in seeing how that becomes real and trackable inside organizations. So I hope to catch you then in peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 